It's good to be together to worship, to continue to worship our matchless Savior and wonderful King. Amen? Amen. If you have a Bible, let me get you to turn to Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. That's where we're going to be. So Mark 2, 18 through 22. If you need a Bible, just let us know, and uh, we'll get one to you. Just raise your hand. If you need one, we'll gladly get one to you. All right. Well, before we dive into God's word, let me pray again for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this afternoon. Uh, thank you for how you're already moving in our service, uh, how you're already working in our service. And we pray, God, um, yeah, in that vein, that you would continue to, to work, um, that, that you would work through the preaching of your word, uh, and that your word will do the work in all of our hearts this afternoon, and that we would sit under your word uh, and um, see the beauty of your word, and that we would, um, yeah, Lord, seek to surrender to your word, to obey your word, and um, to trust your word this afternoon. And so, God, I, I pray uh, that as I preach your word uh, to the people of God, uh, for the glory of God, that you'll be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So Mark 2, verses 18 through 22, reads as follows. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes, here's the outline of the passage. So number one is Jesus and the disciples are questioned. That's verse 18. Number two, Jesus provides an answer. So one, Jesus and the disciples are questioned. To Jesus provides an answer. So we're going to look at verse uh, 18 and dive into to, uh, this point. We looked at this a little bit more in depth last week some, but in case you weren't here or you didn't hear the sermon, we're going to, we're going to start here again uh, to set the, the pace for uh, the rest of the passage. So look back with me at verse 18. Here's what it reads. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So once again, this verse is coming off the cuff of Jesus calling Matthew, who was a tax collector, to himself. He, he called Matthew to, to follow him. And then as he called Matthew to follow him, uh, they break out in a celebration. So Jesus uh, and Matthew and other tax collectors and sinners were on the scene. They are celebrating over a meal in verses 13 through 17, as we studied a couple of weeks ago. 
And as they are celebrating over a meal and Jesus reclining and chilling uh, with Matthew and others, the Pharisees are angry over that. The Pharisees are tripping over that because in their pride and in their views, they thought that they were better than the tax collectors and sinners. They thought that they were the righteous and religious elite, uh, so the, the high and mighty, and that their ways were their righteous way, the standard. They thought that they were, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, they thought that they were spiritually well, right? But in all reality, they were spiritually sick, just like the tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners uh, threw them for a loop. Uh, they were tripping off of this because to them, the tax collectors and sinners were castaways in their mind. They were castaways. So to see a religious leader like Jesus eating with them and socializing with them didn't fit their tradition or their customs. They wouldn't be caught socializing with tax collectors and sinners. So when we come to the passage we're studying this afternoon, we see in verse 18 that John's disciples are fasting. So John's disciples, once again, is referring to John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus' coming. So we saw that in chapter 1. And then the Pharisees are also on the scene fasting. So the Pharisees uh, were some of the religious leaders in Jesus' time, and they were essentially strict keepers of the law. And they followed a rules and a works-based salvation. So the people come with a question about fasting to Jesus. Here's what they ask. They say, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Last week in our time together, we defined fasting is simply this uh, throughout Scripture, that it's a dedicated time where you give up the eating of food to completely focus on God and rely upon God more. So you give up uh, physical food for spiritual food. And this is a, a dedicated time that you set aside to do that. And as we learned last week, the question about fasting was, was not a question actually seeking to understand. It was an accusatory question. It was a trip you up type question. It was an attempt to pull Jesus and his disciples under their rules and their regulations, rules and regulations that weren't actually in the law. And as we learn last week in our time together from Jesus that, so we, we learned from Jesus that, that fasting wasn't meant to make a scene, wasn't, wasn't meant to, to make a scene, that it wasn't to be for that purpose. The people weren't to be flaunting that they are fasting or bringing attention to themselves. You might remember this from Matthew 6. Here's what Jesus says about those who flaunt in their fasting. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So that's Matthew 6, 16 through 18. 
One scholar says this about their question about fasting and flaunting. He says this. He says, frequently flaunted fasting was another example of how the Pharisees added their own superficial traditions to the law of God. The Mosaic law commanded only one annual fast, yet the Pharisees proudly fasted twice a week. So Luke 18, 12, on Mondays and Thursdays. So we learn from this that the Pharisees were doing more, that, more than what God actually required. They were doing more than what God actually required. According to Leviticus 16, 29-31 that our sister Liz read, we learned that the Day of Atonement was the only mandatory fast for the Israelites. So the only mandatory fast for the Israelites. And so as sister Liz, Liz read it uh, before uh, the sermon, I'm going to read it again. It says, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. Or in other translations, it says fast. So afflict yourselves, uh, in other translations, means fast. And shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. So this was the only required fast. This was the only mandatory fast that God required of the Israelites. But we also learned in the Old Testament that there are non-mandatory fasts, that there are non-mandatory fasts. For example, Psalm 69.10, where David says, he says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach, right? So that's one example out of many, and there are other examples. And all of these examples, essentially, to summarize them, uh, were voluntary fasts associated with grief, sorrow over sin, the sincere pursuit of intimacy with God. To summarize those, they were, they were devoted to, to grief, those sorrowful over their sin, or their sincere pursuit of intimacy with God. So when the people ask this question about fasting, this is the angle by which they are coming from again. They're, they're, they're coming it's kind of with a loaded question. This is the angle that they're coming from with this question. And again, this question was an attempt to raise their rules, to raise their regulations above God's word, above what God has required and what he desires from his people, to raise their rules and regulations above what God actually requires and desires. And, and, and so this is the real point of the question, as one commentator puts it. I love how he puts it. He says, the true source of their indignation was not that Jesus' disciples were violating God's law, but that they were failing to observe man-made traditions and rules. You catch that? It was hypocrisy and legalism, not holiness or love for God, that motivated the religious leaders' confrontation. You catch that? So it wasn't, it, 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 was, it was hypocrisy and legalism, not holiness or love for God that molded the religious leaders' confrontation. So the, the fact that they're stepping to Jesus and his disciples, 
it was more so rooted in hip hypocrisy and legalism, not necessarily holiness and love. So what about us Christians? What about you, non-Christian? Are we following God's word or are we following rules? Rules that we may have put on ourselves, man-made rules, things that we may have put on ourselves. Are we following God's word? Are we following rules? You see, this is the problem with man-made traditions and rules. They become the way people try to get to God. That's what happens is that when we create rules, when we create uh, particular traditions or different things along those lines that really aren't biblical, uh, they become our way to get to God. And then you see another thing that the Pharisees believed if they kept God's law and if they kept the man-made traditions that they put in place, that they would be good with God. So this is what the Pharisees believed. They believed, as I talked about last week or so, uh, so they, they obeyed the law, but they also obeyed other rules and traditions that they created that were outside of God's law. So it was a, a fence that they were trying to put around God's law to prevent them from uh, disobeying God. And so they believed that that fence would help them get to God. And so essentially, when we think about these things, that these things don't get us to God. Those things are actually legalism, and they are man-made traditions and religiosity and those types of things that, that won't get us to God. But what Jesus shows them and what he shows us throughout his ministry is that none of these things can actually save us. None of these things can actually get us to God. Only God's son can get us to God. And so some of us, we may think that if we do a bunch of stuff, that that will get us to God, that if we keep the law, if we go to church a bunch of times during the week or attend a bunch of Bible studies or do community service, that those types of things will get us to God. Now, again, these things are good things and things that we as Christians uh, should do out of the right motivation. We come to church. We read our Bibles. We attend Bible studies. We attend prayer meetings. We, we attend these community service events out of the motivation of God, out of God, not out of a motivation that with what we do and how many times we do those things, that that's going to appease God, that that's going to provide acceptance from God, approval from God. We got it backwards if we're thinking it along those lines, is that for the Christian, as we talked about even last week, we have already been approved by God. We've already been accepted by God because of God's son. And so because of God's son and God looking on his son on the basis, yeah, on, in, in, in our place, we receive all of the benefits through God's son. And so may we be reminded of that and encouraged by that this afternoon. But for, but for some of us who are struggling, yeah, with, with works-based or... Uh, different traditions or different things along those lines, and we think that those types of things, if we do those types of things, that that's going to get us to God. I'm reminded of 
our Lord's words here in, in Matthew 7, in thinking about and talking about uh, many works that people will do. I'm reminded of this. He says here in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are some of the most scariest words in Scripture. Some of the most scariest words in Scripture. And I believe the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that it's not based on what you do that will grant you salvation. It's based on what Jesus has done for you that will grant you salvation. None of us, by God's grace, Christians in the room, when we get to heaven, none of us are going to get to heaven and say, Jesus, look at all of what we did to get us there. No, it's going to be, man, Jesus, you did everything to get us here. Your work was enough. Your work satisfied God. None of us are going to get to heaven by God's grace on the basis of what we have done, but only and solely on the basis of what Christ has done alone. Amen? And if you're here and you don't know the Lord, well, the, the challenge and the encouragement to you this afternoon, afternoon would be to come to know him, to, to, to stop working for approval from God and receive God's approved son who in him you can find approval in God, in what he has done for you. Agree with God in his word that you are a sinner and that all of your life, all of what you have done, what you have said, what you have thought, opposes God in his ways. And because you have lived a life in opposition to God, you deserve God's wrath. We all deserve God's wrath, his righteous and due judgment to all sinners. But the mercy and the goodness of our Savior is that Jesus came. Jesus came, who is God's approved son, his beloved son, to live a life that you and I could never live. He lived the perfect sinless life, fully devoted to God, never wavering. And he lived that life in your place and in my place. And then we treated him like a criminal, and he was crucified on the cross, where he was crucified, where he was hung, where he bled, where he died, and was laid in the grave for you and for me. But we know that the grave couldn't hold him, that on the third day he rose from the dead with all power and dominion, offering salvation to all who would turn from their sin and turn to him by faith, to all who would yeah, stop trying to work, but receive his work in what he has done for you on the cross in your place and my place. And he says, man, if you do that, you can be saved. You can be forgiven of all of your sin. You can be 
completely cleansed of all of your sin and made right with God. And so if that's you this afternoon and you don't know him, we want to invite you to get to know him. That God loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place and to rise in your place so that you might know him. If you would like to learn more about that, would love to talk with you further after the service if you have questions about that. But we implore you, turn to Christ. Look to Christ. So that's point one. Jesus and his disciples will question. Here's two. Jesus provides an answer. Jesus provides an answer. So look at verse 19 with me. Here's what it reads. It says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So here Jesus uses an illustration of a wedding celebration here to get his point across. As one commentator puts it, he says, fasting was for times of grief and sorrowful reflection, but a wedding was a joyful and festive event. So you think about Matthew 9, 15, where Jesus says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom with them? No, there will be time for that, Jesus is saying. So the guests or the attendants mentioned in this illustration are the bridegroom's closest friends, and they would have been responsible for, for planning the wedding festivities. Another commentator gives us insight about Jewish weddings. He says, a typical ancient Jewish wedding lasted up to seven days with the celebration starting once the bridegroom and his attendants arrived. So, I mean, just think about, man, Jew in Jewish weddings, I mean, they partied hard for a whole week, right? And when the bridegroom and the attendants arrived, they kept on partying. So to fast during this celebration would have been weird. It would have been awkward. It would have been out of place, out of context to fast during a time like this, a time that is for rejoicing, and celebration, not a time for mourning and sadness. So it would have been inappropriate for the disciples to be fasting in this time. So what Jesus is saying here is that because he's the bridegroom and that he's here now, he's with them, he's present with them at this time, that this isn't a time for them to be mourning. This isn't a time for them to be sad. No, it's a time to celebrate. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to rejoice because Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that they have been looking for and longing for. He has come. The one that they were looking for has come. He's in front of them. He's present. And so because of that, rejoice and be glad. The Pharisees and the other religious, the Sadducees and others, they, they did not see Jesus to be the king that he is and was. They were looking for someone else. But the true king, the true savior, the Messiah, was there, was right there among them. And then he continues on, he says, but there will be a time too fast, so this isn't right now because I'm with you, I'm the bridegroom in this illustration, Rejoice, be glad, 
But there will be a time to fast. There will be a time to mourn. Listen to verse 20. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And so again, Jesus is the bridegroom, and one day the rejoicing will stop abruptly. Why is that? Well, it's because he'll be taken away. And when he's taken away, the guests can fast and mourn on that day. What Jesus is referring to here is his crucifixion. Referring to his crucifixion. This is Jesus' first time mentioning his death in the gospel so far. This is a nod to what would happen in later days, that Jesus would be crucified, that he would die for the sins of the world, that he would die for sinners like you and me and those that were present with him, and that he would die so that them and us could be made right with God. So this is the first nod to, to Jesus' crucifixion. And so then on this day, on this day where Jesus would be crucified, there would be mourning. There would be mourning. There would be sadness. There would be shock. The promised Messiah was killed. But there was also rejoicing because he got up from the grave like he promised got up. And because he did, those who would repent and turn away from their sins and turn to God would be reconciled to God. So this would be a day of mourning, but this would also be a day of rejoicing because Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament pointed to Christ. The New Testament is looking back to Christ. And the fulfillment of him and what he has done for all people of all times who will repent and turn from sin and turn to him. Mourning and mercy can share the same space. Sorrow and joy can share the same space. So Jesus' answer here already so far is combating or combating the religious systems and ideologies of the Pharisees. It's the complete opposite of their thinking and their beliefs. It challenges what they believe is the standard of holiness. Again, they thought that they were the standard of holiness. So Jesus' response here is colliding with that, attacking that. We'll see this even more in the analogies in the last few verses here. He says here, look back with me at verse 21 to look at these analogies. It says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So in verse 21, Jesus is saying essentially, no one will put unshrunk, unshrunk excuse me, fabric on old clothing, right? No one would do that. No one would put unshrunk fabric on old clothing. No, it would ruin the whole outfit. 
if you did. It wouldn't match the color scheme. And if you washed and pulled at it, it would cause some damage to the clothes. It would completely destroy the outfit. So no one would do that in their right mind. No one would, would do that. Here's the point of the analogy. As one brother puts it, he says, our Lord's point was that his gospel of repentance and forgiveness from sin could not be patched into the legalistic traditionalism of Pharisaic Judaism. So essentially what he is saying here is that Jesus' gospel, his message of repentance and faith in him alone, by him alone, for salvation alone, could not be looped in, could not be patched with the legalistic teaching of the Pharisees. It could not be grouped with. It could not be on the same shirt. Right? It, couldn't, it couldn't live in the same space because there are two completely different messages. Legalism and the gospel of Jesus Christ do not mix. Jesus plus legalism equals no gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. And then in verse 22, Jesus is like, you wouldn't put new wine into old wineskins. So in the old days, and for, for some of you all who may uh, have drunk wine or are wine drinkers, uh, you might know this process a little bit more. Um, but it says, so in Testament days, wine was stored in containers made by animal skin. Uh, they would use goat skins often for this. So in the wine process of fermentation, new wine would be put into an old wine skin, uh, and it would cause the skin to, to break uh, because it couldn't hold it. So if you put new wine into an old wine skin, it would cause that wine skin to, to break because the wine skin is not capable of holding it. So then that means that new wine must be put into a new wineskin because it was created, developed to be able to hold it and keep it through the process of fermentation, right? The point of this illustration here says, so like the first illustration, which demonstrated that the true gospel cannot be attached to a false system of worked righteousness, this analogy exemplified the fact that the legalism of Judaism could not contain the message of salvation by grace. Essentially, here we go again, is that their false ideology, their works-based salvation and theology could not contain the message of salvation by grace. Again, two completely different messages opposing one another. He continues to say Jesus' point was that the good news of salvation could not be poured into the brittle, cracked wineskins of apostate Judaism, nor is it compatible with any other man-made or demonic religion. The two don't mix. Completely different messages. And as we talked about even last week, like every other religion is about what you do for God to get to God. Christianity says, no, it's what's been done by God for you. It's done. 
Isn't that more freeing? Isn't that more freeing and more life-giving than if we had to work, 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 work for faith? So Jesus and his gospel, legalism and works-based salvation can't share the same space. Jesus and his message provide forgiveness and freedom. Legalism and works-based salvation produce guilt and bondage. So the challenge for us this afternoon as we close is whose message are we believing? Whose message are you and I believing? Are we believing Jesus' message? Message of freedom? Message of forgiveness? Free from works from us, but completely solely and based on his work alone? Or are we believing something else? Are we believing a message that says essentially, you do the work, this will get you to God. All the things that you do, X, Y, and Z, will produce approval from God, will grant peace from God. Are you believing that message this afternoon? We want to encourage you and implore you. And even that's so that's for Christians and non-Christians. For Christians, if we're not careful, as I've even been saying over these last couple of weeks, we can creep into that lifestyle. We can believe a, a salvation, uh, which is a free and true message, but then also find ourselves as, as we are working out, as we are living out our daily lives, working for something, working for the approval of God, working for God's salvation. Like that little gerbil or that little, you know what I'm saying, little hamster on that, that wheel, running, 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 round and round and round and round and round. We find ourselves doing that same run day after day after day after day after day. And Jesus in his gospel is like, no, I, I've, I've broken that wheel. You don't have to, you don't have to run round and round and round and work, 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 work. I've already done it for you. Believe in me. Rest in me. If you're not a Christian, the good news for you is that, man, like Jesus has done it all for you. He has paid it all for you. You just have to receive. You just have to believe by faith. And trust him. So again, the challenge is Christian, non-Christian, whose message are you believing? When we leave from here this afternoon, what message are you going into the rest of your day with, going into this new work week, work week with? What message are you holding on to? Is it the good news of Christ? based on his work alone? Or is it you saying, man, you know what? I got this. I can do this. 
I'll end with this encouragement from our Lord for all of us who fall on different spectrums. This encouragement from our Lord from, from Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let those words wash over us this afternoon. But Jesus wants us to rest in him. He wants us to find our rest in him. In a salvific sense, that we are saved, we find our rest in him. And that as we, by God's grace, are being sanctified on a daily basis, continuously finding our rest in Christ, his spirit, to produce the work in you, to make you more holy, to make you more like his son, resting in his son by his spirit to produce that work in you and in me. So the reality of it is, of course we strive for holiness, right? Of course we, we want to strive for holiness, want to pursue holiness. Scripture is clear, be holy because I am holy. So we want to pursue holiness, but it's not your works, once again, that's going to produce the holiness. It's trusting and believing upon Jesus' work daily that will produce that holiness and as we've even said before, motivate you to read your word, to pray, to come to church, to come to Bible study, to come to prayer, to go serve in the community, to share the gospel. Let the gospel of God be our motivation. So we're not working for holiness, working from the holiness that God has already granted us through his son. And as we continue to look upon his son and believe upon his son, he will continue to make us more and more holy. Amen? So rest, Christian. Rest. Rest this afternoon. Rest tomorrow. The work has already been done for you. It has been finished. It is finished. Receive that daily as fresh manna from heaven. Fresh bread from heaven. Rest. Non-Christian. Find your rest in him. Find your rest in him. Let's pray as the band comes back up. As the team comes back up. Father in heaven, help us to rest this afternoon. Help us to rest in you, Lord Jesus, in what you have done for us on the cross, dying for our sins, being laid in the grave, being raised from the dead on the third day, offering us all salvation to those who repent and trust you.
Help us to rest in that good news this afternoon. Lord, I pray that you would kill any works-based salvation in us, kill any uh, traditionalism that tries to, um, yeah, tries to go above your word, doesn't want to submit or sit under your word. Kill that in our hearts, Lord. Kill anything in our hearts, God, that seeks to, yeah, that, that, that opposes the freeing truth of the gospel. But that presents bondage and guilt. Whereas your gospel was meant to produce forgiveness and freedom. So Lord, would you free us from the weight of trying to work to receive approval from you? But instead, help us, God, now, in this moment and after this time together and throughout this next few days and weeks and months and years ahead, Lord, help us to know that, no, we are working from the work that you've already done for us. Help us to rest in that. Yeah, Lord, we want to be more holy. We want to look more like you. (laughs) But it's not going to be based on us. It's going to be based on you and the work that you're doing in us that motivates us to study your word, to meditate upon your word, to pray to you, to commune with you. Those are all good things. Help us to do those things with the right motivation. Out of a love for you. We love you. We adore you. That's why we want to read your word. That's why we want to pray to you. You have the words of eternal life. That's why we want to come hear your word preached each week. That's why we want to come and hear your word read to us and pray to us. That's why we want to share your word. Because there's no other truth. There's no other truth. You are the only truth. Help us, Lord. Help us to have the right motivation, Lord. It's not about us. It's all about you. It's all about your glory. Your name to be praised. Your name to be magnified. It's not about Josh. It's not about any of us. It's all about you. So please help us to come to you. The right heart, Lord. Humble our hearts. Humble our lives under you and your word. And help us to obey your word, to love your word, to cherish your word, to delight in your word. And help us, Lord, to enjoy you. You made us to enjoy you. (laughs) That's why we're here. That's our purpose. To know you and to enjoy you forever. Help us, Lord, to not get caught up in the world and the world's ways and stuff. Please help us to keep our hope set on you, our eyes set on you. 
our hearts set on you until you bring us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.